Now remember in Acts chapter 3, we're beginning to turn the corner. The Christians are going to the temple every day to worship. And this is one example of such a day. Acts chapter 3, we'll read through chapter 4, verse 4. So as Blake said, our, our reading today is from Acts chapter 3. Uh, if you could, if you're willing and able, could you uh, stand for the reading of God's Word? Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord will rise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. 
And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God being raised up, God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There was a movie a couple years ago that was nominated for 12 Academy Awards. Uh, Best Director, um, Best uh, Picture, uh, Best Director in Tom Hooper, Best Actor in Colin Firth. Anyone? Anyone? The King's Speech. The King's Speech was about King George VI, who suffered his entire life from a speech impediment. And the story of the King's Speech starts out before King George VI was king. He was Prince Albert. And as Prince Albert, he was asked to give a speech before Wimbledon. And he stuttered and he stammered. And it was so bad it made everyone feel awkward and Prince Albert lowered his head and he walked away dejected in front of thousands of people who had come to watch the match. And his wife, Elizabeth I, is watching her husband, Prince Albert, and knowing that one day he might be king, she goes out and she finds this unorthodox Australian speech therapist named Lionel Logue, played by Jeffrey Rush in the movie, and she hires Logue, and Logue was different. He pushed the king, and he dug deep. He challenged the king, and he helped the king see that his crippling speech impediment was not the only thing that crippled him, because deep beneath his regal exterior lay fears and addictions that were far worse than his speech, and they utterly crippled him. Listen, the Bible talks a lot all throughout the pages of Scripture about how God comes to make everything new. But sometimes when the Bible talks that way, it can actually be a little confusing, can't it? Because the Bible will say things like, you are redeemed and you are being redeemed. You're saved and you will be saved. God's kingdom is here, and his kingdom is coming. I mean, well, which is it? Well, it's both. 
And theologians call this the already and the not yet of the kingdom. There is a line in uh, Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia where the dwarf and the white witch are going through a thawing winter where it's never Christmas. And the dwarf looks around at the horizon and he stops and he says to the white witch, this is no passing thaw. This is spring, I tell you. This, this is Aslan's doing. And Acts chapter 3 becomes like a white-hot furnace or a blowtorch, bringing a crippling winter to its knees and bringing us spring, the spring of the already and the not yet. I want you to see it in this morning's text with us. If you have your Bibles open before you look at Acts chapter 3, I want you to see, first of all, that God heals broken lives. Listen, the context for this miracle is the temple. The temple was the place where people came for healing. The, people, the temple was the place where people came to worship. It was the place of the Holy of Holies. It was the mercy seat. This is the place where people came to worship. But the temple wasn't for everyone, was it? You had, you had the, the court of the Gentiles. And then you had the court of women. And then you had the court of Israel. And then inside the most holy of holy places, you had the court of priests, which had access to the holy of holies. But here is a, is a man who is coming to the temple, but he's not even allowed in the temple. He's not even in. He is back at the entrance by the gate. And here is this man who has been brought every day. In Greek, it says he has been crippled from his mother's womb. He has been brought every day by his friends to the temple, which tells us that this crippling deformity of this man was his identity. It was what owned him. It is what named him. It is what defined him as a human being. And every day his friends would bring him to the gate where he would beg for alms for the worshipers coming into the temple. He is desperate. He begs. Not only is he spiritually not allowed inside the temple because he's crippled, but he's socially and he's physically outside as well. Listen, what cripples you? What isolates you? Whatever it is that cripples you, whether it be big or small, you know it cripples you because it makes you a beggar. Some crippling realities of our life, they come and they go, but some have a lasting grip on us. And the things that disable us, they own us. They name us. They have power over us, and they crush our sense of worth. Is it your relationships? Your jobs? Fear? Addiction, depression. Listen to me, friends. You know something is crippling you because it makes you a beggar. It makes you desperate. 
and your begging comes out in your envy and in your anger at your condition and your crushing sense of worthlessness. And it leaves you many days, if not every day, like a beggar at the gate. Look at verse 6. I want you to notice the way Peter and John address this man. Peter immediately tells him about his own weakness. Peter says, silver or gold I do not have. Peter's not saying to this guy, look, I just, I just don't have it on me. He's saying, I'm broke. I'm poor. I'm a beggar just like you. But it no longer defines me. It no longer names me. It no longer owns me. We are defined by something else, and that's something else, I tell you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And Peter takes this man by the right hand, and he lifts him up, and off into the temple. Notice, into the temple where he's never been allowed to go. He goes leaping and jumping and praising God. Where are you crippled? Listen, God can heal you now. He can heal your finances. He can heal your health. He can heal your addictions. He can heal everything that causes you to have this incredible sense of insecurity. He can heal you now. But he might not. Listen, Peter and John were still poor, but he might heal you in such a way that that crippling condition in your life no longer defines who you are. And you, like that beggar, can go leaping, jumping, and praising God into his presence. He can heal you in such a way that while your circumstances may remain, it no longer defines you. It no longer owns you. Listen, I, I read this this week. For almost all of my life, I was absolutely ruled by what others thought of me. I was a hardworking kid who went to church not once, but three times a week. I knew doctrine, and I knew a lot about God, and I looked down my nose at those less disciplined than I, and bragged about how I had memorized large parts of the Bible. My theology became a cruel and merciless God. I became desperate for others' approval. You hear him begging? Look at me, look at me, how spiritual I am. Until God broke through my life by showing me my utter isolation and loneliness. He let enough pain into my life that I couldn't keep worshiping others' approval and not be miserable. And God broke through. So much so that I let go of the idea that I had to be in control. That I had to have all the answers. Then I was free. I wasn't afraid anymore. Do you know what I mean, he writes? You're so afraid of losing things, and then when you've lost it, you're still alive. You lost it, and you survived. No, more than just survived, you thrived. Because you were raised again from the dead, and you found that you were overcome with something more. That was my story from my journal from years ago. And in many ways, that's still my story. I cannot, you cannot be healed if you don't know you're crippled. But how does he heal you? He brings you into the temple. 
It is by the transforming power of Jesus' heinous death and glorious resurrection that bruised and banged up crippled beggars are no longer defined by what owned them, and they walk and they leap and they run in fellowship with him. Two, God heals the guilty. Secondly, God heals the guilty. Now, look, what draws this crowd in the story that Harlan read? Do you remember it? What draws this crowd? Peter and John do this amazing healing. This crippled man who had been crippled all his life is healed, and he runs, and he's, he's leaping, for goodness sake. And so this crowd gathers, and they quarter Peter and John. And, you know, and Peter's a young preacher. He doesn't know what else to do, so he preaches a sermon. And Peter says to them, listen, you are crippled just like this man. Except you're crippled and you don't even know it. Chris Everett um, was the most um, successful female tennis player that's ever played the game. She had a winning percentage of .899, which means, which means kids, that she won 90% of the games she played. She one time had a streak of winning 125 matches in a row on a clay court. Nobody's ever come close to that kind of winning percentage since Chris Everett. And as she's nearing retirement, she has an interview, and this is what she has to say. I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like I was hooked on a drug. I needed those wins, that applause, in order to have an identity. She could not have said it any clearer. Look, most of us work hard to climb the ladder at work, on the team, to get accepted, to make the grade, to get security, to get a self. And listen, in Chris Everett, it was just tennis. But somewhere along the line, it became more than tennis, didn't it? And her life came unraveled. Tim Keller tells a story in Counterfeit Gods about a friend of his who's at the top of his profession. But an addiction to prescription drugs forced him to resign from his position and seek rehab. And the man who, in the midst of rehab, had a startling confession, and it was this, that he realized that his life was built on two premises. The first premise was that I could control what you think of me by being upbeat and articulate and brilliant and winsome. Do you hear him begging? I can control what people think of me. And the second premise, this man says, was that the only thing that mattered in my life was that first premise. Somewhere along the line, it was just work. It was just his job. And somewhere along the line, it became more than a job, didn't it? And his life came unraveled. David Brooks writes on Paradise Drive. He describes what he calls the professionalization of childhood. And from the earliest years, an alliance of coaches and parents and uh, 
organizations create a pressure cooker of competition designed to produce students who excel at everything. Brooks in the book calls it the mighty achievatron. And the family is no longer what Christopher Latch once called a haven in a heartless world, a counterbalance to the dog-eat-dog areas of life that your kids run around in every day. Instead, David Brooks writes, the family has become a nursery where ambition for identity and self-saving strategies for life and value are first cultivated. Listen, we all want to raise good kids in Owasso. That's one of the reasons why many of us moved here or why we came back. But somewhere along the line, our children can become more than children, can't they? And families are coming unraveled. Peter presses them hard in this text. He says, you handed him over to be killed when Pilate had decided to let him go. I mean, Pilate, for crying out loud, he was a puppet. Pilate had decided to let him go, and you killed him. You, in Greek, it says, you killed life. In your text, it says the author of life. But in the original, it says you killed life. You murdered life. He presses in on them. And yet we know from this context that these people that Peter's talking to probably weren't even there when Jesus died on the cross. And by implication, what is he saying? He's saying you killed Jesus by your sin and by your pursuit of salvation outside of God's will. Listen, I experienced that just this week. Last weekend, Lauren was out of town. She was at her parents. And man, I, I was stoked to have a weekend where I could control every minute of it. And I had it all worked out. I was going to get stuff done around the house. I was going to hang out with people I hadn't seen in a while. It was going to be great. And I come home Friday night from taking Lauren to Dallas. And there's water in my garage. And my hot water heater is broken. So I call the plumber. And I spend all day Saturday helping this guy fix my water heater. And I want you to know something. I was angry. That plumber did this. I mean, if they put it in the right the first time, this wouldn't have happened. The former owner did this. I mean, can you hurry up, please? I've got places to be. And listen, with anger in my heart toward that man, I was, I was cool, don't worry about it, I was cool. But in my heart... With anger, I murdered him, and I hated him. You know what I needed that Saturday? It was not a new water heater. I needed repentance. And it's when you recognize that you are broken by your own pursuits of self-salvation that you're only then able to walk and leap into the presence of God. Listen, there's not a person in this room who could not say that they are a sinner saved by grace or in need of grace, and that's true. But just being kind of generic about it is a way of avoiding sin. Lance Armstrong was the most famous cyclist ever. He won seven Tour de France's. You can go to his house in Austin, at least he won seven Tour de France's. You could see all seven of his yellow jerseys until it was discovered that he cheated in every one of them. The U.S. Anti-Doping Agency said that 
Armstrong engaged in the most sophisticated, professionalized, and successful doping program that has ever been seen. And all his titles were pulled. And he said in an interview with Oprah, this, this was, this was his confession. This is not a good time in my life, but it's not the worst part of my life. I'm, it's close, but I'm an optimist. I like to look forward, and I don't ever go back. I, I just don't go there. Yes, Lance, go there. You killed Jesus. Listen, we, we, cannot, we cannot be the kind of people who, when we do something, we just go, well, I can't imagine that I would do such a thing. You killed Jesus. I, mean, I can't, I, I, I didn't really mean, you killed Jesus. You're pretending. You're performing. Listen, don't, please don't be so fierce about your innocence. You killed Jesus. You know, people come to me all the time and they'll say, yeah, listen, yeah, 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 I'm a sinner, but, but listen to what my spouse did, or listen to what my roommate did, or listen to what this person I date did, or listen, listen. and sometimes I just want to say to them, Man, listen, look at me. You're not broken enough. I mean, it's one thing to weep over the consequences of your sin. Sure, that's easy. We all do that. But have you wept for your sin? I mean, have you ever wept over the fact that you killed Jesus? This isn't about somebody else. Not only is being generic a way of avoiding guilt, but plain dumb is too. I didn't know. Listen, Peter says to them, yes, you did. The prophets in verse 22 through 26, all throughout history, had testified to the Messiah. And you of all people should have been the one that would recognize him, but you were so stuck in religion that you missed it. And you killed the Son of God. Well, who told us about it? Well, Moses told you about it. How about that? And Samuel, Samuel told you about it too, and you missed it. In fact, all the prophets told you about it. You see, the gospel is that Peter, Peter will not let them off the hook. They killed Jesus. And you and I, friends, will never be free from the guilt or our driven quest to have value until we go deep with our repentance and we say, I killed Jesus. Becoming a Christian begins with, I killed Jesus. Understanding yourself begins with, I killed Jesus. Healing a broken relationship begins with, I killed Jesus. Getting free from that addiction begins with, I killed Jesus. Being free from your anger, from your self-righteousness, from your resentment, from being a snob begins with, I killed Jesus. But, Peter says, he's washed away your sin. You see, Peter wants people running and leaping into the presence of God. And you will never be able to forgive or walk or run from all that cripples you until you grasp that you murdered him. That you were in the crowd that day screaming with anger in your face, crucify him, crucify him. 
And Peter says to them and to us, repent and believe. Turn from your sin so that times of refreshing may come. God heals broken lives, and God heals the guilty. And third, God heals all things. In Colossians, it says that God reconciles all things to himself by his blood. In this chapter, it says that he restores all things. Listen, all things in Greek means all things. Everything means everything. All means all. Jesus said in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. Paul writes in Romans 8, We know that the whole creation is groaning as though in childbirth right up until the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. See, Jesus is unlike the founder of any other major faith in that he holds out hope for extraordinary human life because Jesus rose from the dead physically. And this man who is running and leaping and praising God into the temple, he's a picture of your future. To be leaping is the Greek word haloimai. It's in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. It is the word that Isaiah in Isaiah 35 uses to describe what it's going to be like when we're all in heaven together in the new Jerusalem. Be strong, Isaiah says, and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, and he will save you. And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man, that's the word, shall leap like a deer. It's a picture of God's kingdom come now, in full, already, but not yet. All things made new. You got it? Listen, God is not preparing some ethereal, abstract existence up there in heaven where one day, hear me now, you're going to get a harp and issued a cloud and you're going to sit there and pluck it for all eternity. God is preparing a real existence. New heavens, new earth. Everything sad comes untrue. You will run through the park and splash in the lake to degrees of power and glory with friends in the city of God forever. You can't even imagine how real it is. It is not an ethereal, abstract existence, friends. He wants you running and leaping. One day you will fully leap. Now you do so in part. If you're willing to believe. C.S. Lewis says it like this. You know, imagine yourself like a house and God comes in and starts working on your gutters. And you think he's just there to kind of tidy things up. He fixes your plumbing. He fixes your gutters. He restores your shingles. But then he starts whacking about in ways that hurt you abdominally, Lewis says, that make no sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building, Lewis says, quite a different building than you expected. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building you into a palace. Listen, the queen, what, as the queen thought might happen, indeed did happen. Prince Albert did become king. And two years after he became king in 1937, 
Britain declares war on Nazi Germany. And he has to give the speech of his life. He's asked to give the speech of his life. And the BBC sets up a sound room, and he walks into the sound room, this muttering, stuttering, crippled man. And he could only have one person in that sound room with him. And guess who he invites in there? This unorthodox Australian speech therapist named Lionel Logue. And with Lionel Logue's help, he articulates this incredible, moving speech. And the entire island of Britain hears him. And they are moved into action, and they are given courage. And he walks in to that booth, a crippled man, and he walks out of it completely new. Jesus wants you to be free, and he loves you so much, friends, that he'll take you just as you are. And we're all broken in this church. But he loves you too much to leave you the way you are. He wants to free you from what owns you, what cripples you, free from the impediment no longer defining who you are. Listen, we do not have to remain who we once were. Lionel Logue wanted more from the king than just clear speech. And so also, friends, you have a father who wants from you something more. He wants that debilitating insecurity in your life, that crippling deformity to no longer define who you are. And he wants you to turn in repentance from it and walk into his presence leaping and jumping and praising God. And he has the power to make the lame to walk. And he has a love for you to me, so much love that he would place his one and only son on that cross. And the historical reality of Jesus' death and his resurrection and taking away your sin and giving you his righteousness shows that God has bound himself to us to make sure that that happens. That your dingy little cottage becomes a palace. And he gives us his spirit to heal our broken lives, our guilt, our everything. In the last page of the Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis writes that now at last they were beginning the chapter, the first chapter of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read and which goes on forever and ever, in which each chapter is better than the one before. Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are making all things new. Through our poverty, our brokenness, our guilt, you gave us your blood. Through the crown, through being spit upon and beaten, through being crucified and bearing our guilt, Bearing our sorrow, bearing all that's broken in the world, rising from the dead, giving us your name, clothing us with your righteousness. God, you're healing all things. You're making all things new. You are beautiful. You are mighty. And you are our only hope. In Jesus' name, amen.